As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Welcome once again. Today, it is Thursday. I will be taking a look back on the end of the Champions League group phase, which saw Manchester United sadly eliminated. Uh, lots of you celebrating that, though, of course. Uh, Sergio Aguero returned for City ahead of that Manchester derby at the weekend in the Premier League. We'll talk about what his return means. And there were positive signs for anti-racism in football in Paris and back home as well. All to be discussed uh, over the next 50 minutes or so with Tom Clark, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson of The Times. Gentlemen, how are you? Not bad, Hugh. Thank you very much. Probably a little bit better than you're doing this week, I'm sure. It's feeling a bit low. Should whoa, whoa, whoa. You- low? <laughs> let me tell you something. Manchester United's chances of winning a European trophy have, have quadrupled in the last couple of days. I'm absolutely delighted, Tom, because they were never going to win the Champions League and maybe... Maybe if a new manager comes in and, you know, a couple of players coming in January, they'll have half a chance of winning the Europa League. So you've got to look at the silver linings here, Tom, you see? Wow, I want to, I definitely want whatever coffee you drink in the morning because that is a that is one of the best positive spins I've ever heard on such a dismal display. But you know, after going to Wickham, my outlook on Manchester United has changed. I said to you, I'm going to celebrate every goal. I'm going to celebrate every point and I'm just going to see them for what they are. And immediately in the aftermath of that uh, exit in the Champions League and that defeat, I think it was clear we were beaten by RB, RB Leipzig and we, I think everyone could see Manchester United are a Europa League side. So that's, so that's it. They're in the Europa League for a reason. They've got a chance, a probably improved chance of reaching the Champions League next year as well because if they win the Europa League, uh, they'll be in next season's Champions League. So it is, it is major pluses. It's win-win, Tom. You know, you need to stop seeing such negativity in that, in that result. It was absolutely sensational from Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, who we'll come to in a second. Um, but we will be discussing a little bit later on as well um, with the Times Chief Sports Writer, Matt Dickinson. Memories of Paolo Rossi. Those of you who remember that World Cup in 1982 as well, after he passed away at the age of 64. He was a European Cup winner as well with Juventus in 1985. So we start with the Champions League. The Premier League sides very well represented in the second round. Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester City all through as group winners. Manchester United, though, knocked out, beaten 3-2 by RB Leipzig. It could have been more, let's be honest. They're into the Europa League, uh, as we've already mentioned. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said in the build-up to the game, it was not in Manchester United's DNA to play for a draw. Barely looked like they played for a win, to be perfectly honest. Um... Tom Clark, I'm going to start with you. I, I don't really want to start with a wider context. Let's, let's start with tactics. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer played five at the back. Um, he, he, I think he was a little bit hamstrung by the fact Edinson Cavani was out for the game. So was Anthony Martial. Um, but even with a basically a flat back five, they conceded poor chances. I mean, the defending was appalling. Who's to blame, players or management? Management, absolutely management in that scenario. I think to have been in, to have that group and to win the games that they did, the big win over Leipzig early in the group stage, managed to beat PSG and to then go get knocked out. The Istanbul game was obviously a nightmare as well defensively. I I mean, I'd be interested in Gregor's view about this, but in any level, any of the football I've ever seen, I've never seen a defence turned running back towards their own goal that quickly in a game in such a simple way, like with a cross field pass like that, going all the way across a back four that are back five, sorry, that are desperately scampering to get there. And also I would have thought one of the benefits of having a back five is that someone in Aaron Wan-Bissaka's position won't be tucked so far inside and exposed over his shoulder in the way that he was by Angelino. 
I've said before, I just it it just shows management and tactics that are a little bit out of um, out of his depth. And I think the most the most damning thing for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is not anything I can say, but my dear colleague Jonathan Northcroft, who, as we know, any listeners to this podcast will know, <laughs> is a big defender of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. However, in his Times Football newsletter, which you can get by subscribing, you get every Wednesday Johnny's views on football. He said, and I quote. I felt the continual questioning of Solskjaer during his first season and a half was often glib and involved willfully ignoring progress made. However, the questioning now is justified. The biggest clubs must always be moving forward and having manoeuvred United onto a good platform at the end of the last season, this season has mostly been a mess for Solskjaer. He's lost Johnny he, Northcroft. He took his time to get to that view as well, didn't he? <laughs> he did. He's taken a while, but he's got there in the end. And I think that, you know, he's lost Johnny Northcroft. I yeah. think it's a big problem for Solskjaer. That, that, show, that shows, you know, Johnny has made very eloquent and detailed points about what, what Solskjaer has done right. That performance and lots of the others of recent weeks, you know, even against West Ham, that first half against West Ham, the tactics were all over the place, weren't they? Some people try to give him credit for bringing on his two best players at half time, as if that's kind of some tactical. Yeah, but it's not. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's just one, it's his one get out of jail card, which is Bruno Fernandes. And as you can't keep relying on one very, very good player amongst and not, it has to be the manager's fault, doesn't it? It has to be at this stage. I don't, you know, Gregor, am I I right about the defence thing? You know, you surely, you don't get, in a big game like that, any game, you don't get turned running back towards your own goal as a back five like that after 90 seconds. No, and when you play with wing-backs, the one thing that does is give the the wing-back the opportunity to get close to, um, the player trying to cross the ball. Certainly, you shouldn't be having overloads like that and you certainly shouldn't have balls going across the whole of, you know, going right across the pitch and on the other side, the other wing back is still kind of, you know, in no man's land. Um, the, the one thing wing back, playing with wing backs does is it gives you opportunity for those players to, to mark, you know, to close down the cross and on the other side to cover and neither happens. So, I think again we've had this. I know we're trying to find new things to say about this because there is an element of it still being the same old cycle, and you could it could come back to Manchester United winning the derby or you know having a decent performance, and we'll go oh you know even last week they 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 went what did they go four points off the top of the league something like that and you go hang on a minute it wasn't that bad to start was it it's just the same old cycle so that's still true, but how long does it go on for? How long do you, does that cycle keep on turning? And how long do you, does it take before you go? Best group of players, you know. Although there are weaknesses and there are some of those things, I don't say I don't think it was just the way Ole Gunnar Solskjaer sent them out. You look at Wan Bissaka in that game and you think he's got to take some personal responsibility for for allowing that to happen. That particular Angelino's goal. But these this group of players, there's more. There surely is more that can be drawn from these players. And and it was the contrast between them and Leipzig too, you know, a well-drilled team that played with zip and purpose and they look like they're well-coached. The contrast was striking. So, you know, that 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 that's something we've known for a while and it's just like, how long does this, how long does it keep on turning before, you know, Ollie jumps off the wheel? <laughs> Tom, I think one of the reasons I've sort of plateaued with my emotions, I'm not going to let Manchester United get to me anymore, is because it's become evident that, that they've accepted this. And there's very little that I or any other Manchester United fan can do about it, it seems. You know, I know that there are people out there that believe Ole Gunnar Solskjaer could, could do something with Manchester United uh, in the future. But I think we, we all have seen, as Gregor points out, a cycle of... You know, they'll beat a couple of big name teams. They will lose in a very poor fashion to a team that they're expected to beat. Their home form is poor. They're a consistently inconsistent side. And they cannot be trusted, in my opinion, in the really big games, um, Manchester United. Now, I know people will go, well, they beat loads of big sides. And that's not what I really mean. I mean, when it really counts... It doesn't matter who the opposition are. I can't really trust Manchester United. I never, you know, on, under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I never really have, it, you know, and, and people will reflect, I'm sure, on Marcus Rashford in PSG, against PSG in the knockout stages where Lukaku scored a couple of goals. That was fortune. 
I mean, they were handed goals on that evening, you know, and th- that was the night that Rio Ferdinand was like, put the contract on the table, you know, Ollie's at the wheel, you know, Man United are back. And it was all folly. It was ridiculous. But now it seems like people have become so entrenched with the decision they made to put Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in charge that they can't row back on it. It's like, I mean, if he wasn't a club legend, he would be gone. But I think for me, this is the period at which I can only compare it to Arsenal, where there was a long a period of, um, we're not that good, we're not that bad, and we're going to accept it. And it's almost like Manchester United now are accepting that if they reach fourth place in the league, it would be a massive success. A lot like Arsene Wenger said, getting to the top four is like winning a trophy and half the Arsenal fans went, what on earth are you talking about? But that was because they were thinking about his title winning sides. And I think it's almost at the point that Manchester United are saying, it's okay to be a top four team. And if the club is going to accept that, why should fans think anything different? Totally. I mean, I, I was thinking uh, the reaction from Tuesday night from inside the club was, yeah, but look at the league, wasn't it? Yeah, but look at the league. We're still not that far off the top. But that shouldn't be that. That was how Arsenal went, you know, accepting their goal was to get into the top four. But and, and it made me think of the whole the, the the hierarchy at United and and the whole the amount of impressions they got on social media for Alexis Sanchez's signing and and things like that, where their objectives are sort of skewed and there isn't there is an acceptability around finishing fourth. I remember um, doing the interview with uh, Romelu Lukaku a few weeks ago and talking about how well United had done since he'd left. And he said exactly that, that they, well, last year they achieved their objective of getting in the top four, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't be their objective at all. What I also found interesting the other night after the Leipzig game was how Solskjaer reacted to it because it, we, we were speaking about the, 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 awful defending that they did and it it was interesting to see Solskjaer almost sort of throw the players under the bus a little bit subtly but he said I told them that they were going to get deep crosses into the box I told them that so he was distancing himself and I think part of that was to do with the PSG game a few a couple of weeks back because there was so much criticism criticism of him after that game, and rightly so, about his naivety, which taps into the, the fact he's a, still an inexperienced coach and the questions around whether he should be in the job, whether he's, he, he has strong enough CV for the job. And it tapped into that, and I think that was his way of, of defending himself because he saw the more criticism of naivety. We knew what Leipzig were going to do. They knew what Leipzig were going to do, and they, they couldn't defend against it. Tom Clark, what do you think about my view on uh, Manchester United now accepting mediocrity, generally speaking? I mean, I'm a, I'm, as I've said before, I'm slightly on board with that because I, I don't think they're a very good team. I think if we think about the teams at that kind of level, if we're talking about them being a top four side, I, I don't think it has any merit in talking about the grand delusions of the past and what Manchester United should be and DNA and all that kind of stuff. I don't think they are that level. I think that would be almost okay if they accepted or said, okay, well, we're going to be compete for the top four. We're a long way off Liverpool and Manchester City. Um but I just, I just, I think with that, you then have moments like this. You have first halves against West Ham where it just looks completely devoid of any idea, any tactical plan. It's so inconsistent. To, to win, to beat PSG and then Leipzig and have six points from two games with four left, a double header against Istanbul and not get out of the group. That's just black and white rubbish that's just just no debates about it no big grand you know theorizing about where Manchester United are that's just rubbish that's just not good enough um and it it, whether you're thinking they're accepting top four or not that is a massive failure on the management and the players but you're not Manchester United had a constant turnover of players this manager has had long enough he has to accept responsibility for that failure but I I don't I don't think there's any great issue with them accepting being a fourth place side and competing with those levels of teams in the Premier League. 
I don't think there's any great issue with that because I think that's in reality, that's all they could be. But it's more that I they need to have some kind of plan around that. You know, take Tottenham, for example. It's very easy and lazy to make a comparison. But we all said at the start of the season, oh, it'd be interesting to see how Jose Mourinho does. There's a clear plan there. And off the back of that, they're maybe slightly overperforming. But they might, they will probably get fourth, but they might challenge for the top of the title and everyone's happy. It's all just so muddied and all so confused at Manchester United in every sense. But you have to get it right on the pitch first before you can start debating what our goal is, surely. But they did that, but the two things are, are you know, intrinsically linked. All of that bigger picture stuff, I've, you know, I, I keep kind of pouring cold water on that. That comes from the owners and from the people who make the decisions, ultimately. They look at and decide whether they think keeping Solskjaer in, in post and whether he, they think you, you'll get in the Champions League and you'll keep the money coming in, whether that's okay for them. That's that's their decision. The fans always think that they're better. You know, there should be something bigger. That will never change. So we're back to talking about the big issues about owners. I don't think we should bother doing that again because they, you know that's not going to change. There's no sign of that changing. But this wasn't an ownership problem either. I don't believe that anything we saw in the Champions League group stage. No, came no, no, down no, no. Owners. I'm just talking about the 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 talk about what you know the idea about what Manchester United should be aiming for. That really is their decision. The fans, the players, Solskjaer, they all think we should be going for the title. But, the, you know, Edward Ward and the Glazers, they would be the ones that say, well, look, you know, there's a bigger picture here. We get in the top four, we'll get the money, the money keeps turning. So really, let, let's part it to, to one side. If you look at Manchester United on the pitch, you know, the fact that they've gone behind in seven of the last nine games as well, it's like there's no coherent strategy about that. And then they have to throw on players to... You know, to go for it, and it's you know anyway. You know, the team changes; the whole dynamic of the team changes when that happens too. And you, you see a different performance. People go, "Oh, actually, you know, Pogba came on, he did all right." Or the changes at West Ham, and they go, "You know, they, you know, it's black and white, the chalk and cheese." Those two performances, but they have to be because they've gone behind. <laughs> it's like there's no coherent strategy and set up and 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 plan of how to win the game from the start. That's what is absolutely non-existent under Solskjaer, I think. It's always, it's always, it's always reactive. Everything is reactive. It's even whether that's that's being played against the bigger teams, and we've seen it get good results against them by being the team who can defend resolutely. Although saying that now, they've conceded 27 goals in 16 games in the Premier League and Champions League. So even that resolve is has disappeared. So there's not really many positives to take. Anything. Any positives are reactive. I also think that the reaction of Solskjaer to those those games that are coming from behind, especially after that West Ham game, I think that was what the fourth game in a row that they came come from behind to win. And he was he was describing the sort of the spirit in the side and 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 how much it showed how impressive that was. And you kind of get that for one game if 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 a if a team in the top four does that in one game, but not that much. I mean that that tells you more about the 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 guy taking charge of that side to to the team really. It's like Roy Keane, you know. Roy Keane always said it was easy to play well when you're two 0 down or you know something along those lines. There's no no truer word has been said when there's no pressure when you're two 0 down. Or when you're, you know, when you're chasing a game like that, there's the pressure is gone, and you saw Manchester United. You've seen them rise to the occasion, but they're 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 not sent out with a clear plan to win the game beforehand. We'll talk about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's future in a bit as well, because I think um, the Manchester derby's on the horizon. We'll talk about Sergio Aguero, but there is something that I think we needed to discuss around Paul Pogba, and I know people will say, "Oh, Paul Pogba." Again, but his agent Mino Raiola coming out the day before a game, two days before a game of that magnitude, saying that Paul Pogba's unhappy at the club, his time there is coming to an end, he could be playing for Juventus next season. I mean, football or not, when it comes to Paul Pogba, people can have their opinions, but surely there is only one real opinion to have on this. If you can't stop your agent, and this must be the sixth or seventh time Mina Royal has come out publicly to say stuff about Paul Pogba's future. If you can't stop your agent from doing that, it's because you you want him to, to say these things. Gregor, talk to me. If Paul Pogba was in your team and these stories kept coming out, I could only think on that day that if I was Harry Maguire, 
I'd be having a tear up with Paul Pogba at this stage. Honestly, and that's not as a Manchester United fan. That is me thinking if he was my teammate and we had a game of that magnitude and a Manchester derby on the horizon and a player, a teammate of mine's agent, not for the first time, had come out and said something like that, that I have to point the finger at Paul Pogba instead. My first reaction to that is that I'm not actually sure that this would be something that would be openly discussed in the changing room. I think that, you know, there's so... there's stories about players all the time in various, you know, in, in the in the press and the media. And if you were discussing them all all the time, then there'd be nothing else to talk about. Obviously, Paul Pogba, this is something that's a familiar, uh, a familiar occurrence. Um, personally, I just think he's he's not worth the hassle. I don't think he's worth the hassle. I don't think he has been for Manchester United. I don't think he he will be. I think. Everyone, everyone goes back and says, yeah, he won the World Cup with France and the last time he was playing in a good team, he was success for Juventus. He has had, you know, he's been at Manchester United in a difficult era, difficult period of time under manager, but under managers who have not been a success for, for Manchester United. So there is that kind of mitigating factor, but it's not worth it. He's not, he's not worth it. He's not worth the noise. His performances aren't worth the noise. And I feel like they should sell them as soon as they possibly can. I'm, uh, I've definitely taken some controversial opinions on this podcast and I never thought this would be one of them, but there has to be an element of where Mino Raiola is doing everyone involved in this saga a favour because he's becoming a focal point in a negative way in he's becoming the villain of the piece. Paul Pogba was cost Manchester United a hell of a lot of money, was seen by Edward Wood as the star focal point of this rebirth under Jose Mourinho, and it hasn't worked out. Paul Pogba can and often is a very good footballer, but hasn't produced. And if and when he leaves Manchester United, it will probably be largely regarded as a failure. Therefore, for Manchester United and Ed Woodward, it's also a massive failure. And it's also a failure for all these managers who have failed to get the best out of him. But by doing what he's doing, Mino Raiola is taking that a lot of that heat and a lot of that discussion away from the the overarching narrative he's becoming the villain of the piece and so I th- in a weird way I, I almost wonder whether Paul Pogba and Manchester United are grateful for the way Raiola does his business in this way I know it's, it's probably driving nice the trace too well he has but at the same time Paul Pogba's got six months left on his current deal and then he's had a year extended so eight tips on the back of his current performances in the current climate Without the whipping up a bit of noise around it, what I mean, who who if we're playing hypothetical football manager, who who's going to actually pay for Paul Pogba? Tom, anyone? You know, any top? Uh, well, I think Paris Saint Germain will. I think if Kylian Mbappe is leaving, Paul Pogba goes to PSG purely for branding. I mean, they'll walk the league with him or not, but the they need a sort of French central figure in the national team who is trendy, cool and goes with all their branding in terms of merchandise and kits and Air Jordan, um, you know, matching up with what they want to do with the club, basically. So is Paul Pogba still cool enough to play for PSG? Yeah, he is. And I think they'll pay the money for everything that goes with what... what he, you have to, we have to say, you know, Paul Pogba is... We have, you know, we can't just dismiss him completely in regard to what his what he wants to achieve as a footballer. You know, the guys won a World Cup was a pretty instrumental part of that France team. I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a minute that he's not been good. You know, he's not had his failings as a Manchester United player, but there will be a part of him as we, you know, Paul Hurst has written today. He's got his heart set. Pogba has his heart set on returning to Juventus, which in footballing terms is a better fit than PSG. I take your point on branding and that obviously has a massive massive play in modern football but we have to say that Pogba will, will probably be saying to Raiola well yeah fine PSG mate, I might win a few French titles and it'll be better than United but I'd rather Juventus or Real Madrid that in itself comes back to a bit of a bidding war where maybe they'll get the price up a little bit bidding war, behave yourself It's also no coincidence that it was it was in Tuto Sport, wasn't it? It was in the, the Italian media where Raiola spoke about this. I think that that just shows you where he kind of wants to go and, and goes into Paul's story about Juventus, which, which also says a little bit about how Pogba feels about the situation at United, that kind of harking back to where his career was put sort of... Re- 
truly propelled back at back at Juventus and and kind of maybe where he properly fell in love with with kind of football. But um, I think a little bit the idea of Raola being being the villain and being a, a good thing. For, for United and Solskjaer, I kind of see it the other way in that he, he it kind of represents Solskjaer's lack of control. That I don't think Raiola. I know, I know, I know. Raiola's happy to do this a lot of the time. He's one of the outspoken agents, the most outspoken agent. But it showed the lack of respect that he has for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to do this. Yeah, I think that's definitely a case. But I mean, I, I, I definitely think that's the case. But I think increasingly in this modern era of football that Hugh has described with the PSG stuff, you know, agents of Raiola's um, standing, should we say, for want of a better word, they don't really give a stuff about any manager. You know, that that's why he bent, you know, he put Sir Alex Ferguson's nose so far out of joint because Ferguson was from an old school era of where the manager controlled all. Managers don't really do that these days, you know. Even even Jurgen Klopp, you know, Michael Edwards does a lot of the transfer dealings at Liverpool, and yes, Klopp has a massive say. I'm not dismissing that, but it, I, I I think I, I don't think Raiola would be bothered about offending Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp if it was for the benefit of him and his client personally. I, uh, I yeah, I maybe agree with you on that one. I don't think Raiola really shirks anything, but I think if I'm Manchester United and I'm Ed Woodward, I'm going to PSG and I'm saying this is the price and I'm offering them a cut price deal and I'm saying pay it in January or we'll sort it out for the summer and I don't give them the option of going to Juventus or Real Madrid. Like, I am there peddling this player to a league and a team that I think in the future we won't have to worry about him if if, if even that comes up. Um, I agree, but then as a Man United fan, you might have to accept thirty million for him if you want that, because Pogba might say, "Well, you know, I'm not." But well, this is the thing. Juventus, rather is, go well, to Juventus, and Juventus, as we know, Aaron Ramsey, Kadira, loads of free transfers. So Juventus will just sit and wait for eighteen months to pass and take him on a free. You just say to Paul Pogba, "It's Paris Saint Germain now. They're going to pay you more than anyone else is going to pay you. This is the deal that we want to do, or you can stay for the next eighteen months." I think there's too much breath wasted on him. I think, honest to God, it's... Th- by it's, us. But by everyone, yeah. I think we should move on. I think he's... I think he is, you know, a, a massive failure. Massive failure for Manchester United. And who knows, he might go and be a success somewhere else. There might be somewhere where it's a bit more settled and he's working for a, a manager with a bit more of a an overriding, overarching kind of plan and where he's going to fit in that system. But personally speaking... I'm not too sure about that either. I don't know what he is now. I don't. I don't know. I'm still not really sure what he is, what his best position is, what his, you know, he, he floats in and out. He's the kind of player who he he can play the most, you know, those worldly diagonal passes that you go, oh, he just swoon, or he nutmegs a player in midfield. He does those things, but does he? How often does he really affect the game? Football is about how you affect the game, about how you help your team win or prevent them from losing. And he does those things. It seems to me that those things are almost more important to him on the pitch than the things that affect the game. That's my my feeling about Pogba. Let's move on. (laughs) Let's move on before we lose Gregor. Absolutely. We want to keep you here right until the end of the podcast, at least. If Gregor's not with us on Monday, Paul Pogba's certainly got to him. So let's hope that he survives until then. Let's talk about Manchester City. We won't move too far away. There is a Manchester derby to come in the Premier League at the weekend. Manchester City, a much changed Manchester City, warmed up for that match by beating Marseille in their final group game. Uh, Three goals to nil. But Sergio Aguero, their Argentine striker, returned for just his third appearance of the season and, of course, got on the score sheet, didn't he? Just to remind us all what sort of talent he's got. He looked sharper than I thought he was going to look. He came on, I think, 67th minute um, and it wasn't too long before he scored a goal. So, firstly, Tom Clark, I'll start with you. How important is Sergio Aguero going to be for City for the rest of the season if he stays fit? And importantly, how much do we think he's actually going to have an effect in the Manchester derby? Will it make any difference whatsoever? Can Manchester United get a result and a response to their exit in the Champions League? I think just by appearing for Manchester City uh, Champions League, he's had a massive effect on the derby already because Victor Lindelof and Harry Maguire will now be losing even more sleep than they were before at the prospect of facing him. Sergio Aguero is one of the great Premier League strikers and him being even half fit is going to have a massive impact. I'm 
really interested to see. I'm, I've been fascinated by Manchester City all season, to be fair. In they've shown lots of little different tactical tweaks. They've shown the obvious weaknesses in the games against Tottenham, where Pep's you know had the wool you know wool pulled over him a little bit, and it's all been fairly obvious and transparent that they can have teams do a job on them. I'd be really interested to see how much he comes back in and whether Pep does maybe use him as an impact player off the bench or maybe plays him 60 minutes, get the goal, get us in front, off you come. Because I think just not having him in the squad, not having him as part of the team is such a detrimental thing. And I think there might be a more considered way of managing him. Because I think, is he 32 now? I mean, you know, that's yeah, still he's still young for a modern day footballer, but someone who's had a lot of injuries, I wouldn't be surprised to see him maybe start on the bench in more games than we'd expect and but have that impact. And just 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 him being on the bench, I genuinely think is enough to terrify defenders and terrify other teams because you know, even if you keep it quiet for sixty minutes, you've got one of the deadliest finishes coming off the bench when you're maybe a bit tired. So it's a huge thing for Manchester City and it's a huge thing in the title race as well because we've got an interesting, it's it's very well poised, isn't it? So having a player like him coming back into the fold is going to make it more interesting. Tom Roddy, I do think this is the sort of game that Manchester United probably perform well in and win. Uh, under Solskjaer, every time they've been widely criticised and in need of a result and then faced a big team next, they seem to have won. <laughs> um, but I can't, really predict anything other than a Manchester City win because they seem to be getting a rhythm and gelling, particularly going forwards, um, that we haven't seen for for a while with them. Things are getting a little bit more comfortable at the back as well. Yeah, I, I actually think, I think you put it perfectly early, Hugh, saying about um, Man United uh, win. I wouldn't put it past Man United winning this because they win big these big games, but they don't deal with the big pressure games. But I think Tom's spot on saying that having Aguero on the bench will will be huge. I don't think he's going to start, but bringing him on when that United comeback is 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 in full force in the second half will be will be important. But I think you know Ferran Torres has 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 been deputised for him really well. I mean, settled in so well. But I think the most impressive thing at City this season has actually been more more defensively. I mean, they they can I think they conceded the least amount of goals of any team in the Champions League group stages, and it's always been the thing we've been most critical of City. Really, is is the is the defending the, um, and. It, they're the hardest club to be to to be a defender for, to be a centre back for, because you don't have the protection. The demands on you are so much greater than any other club being able to play out from the back. And I think the the loss of Eric Garcia on on you know last night was was big. Whether he'll he'll play, but. I think they they were shrewd in bringing in Nathan Aki in the summer. You know, it was a lot of money, but but what it's done has been has been huge because Mendy's brilliant going forward, but City really needed someone who could defend and cover, and Aki brings that kind of versatility. Um, so I think you know if 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 Aguero stays fit this year is is the big thing because he's only played five games so far and, and that's kind of a worry, especially at 32. He's not old yet. I want to look ahead to the Manchester Derby by asking the question about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, if he gets hammered, if they get battered, will he possibly be gone? And if he does, would someone like Pochettino even make a difference with the current squad, Gregor Robertson? I don't think he'll go yet no I think it would have to be a fairly fairly major slump for him to be for him to be shown the door as to whether Pochettino make a difference yes I mean the team would be playing would play a very different type of football and you know it'd be a, I think there'd be a bit more energy and dynamism in the team but whether that would, you know, whether he could help them return to being a team that are challenging for the title. Again, we're just coming back to all the all the other issues about the way the club are, are run and and you know how they're recruiting players. Another thing that just seems to blow my mind in the last few days is how people saying, you know, people trying to make kind of uh, excuses for Solskjaer. And one of the, one of them is that they didn't 
get his number one transfer target, Jaden Sancho, in the summer. Like, you know, <laughs> he didn't he didn't spend hundred million on Jaden Sancho, the kind of most exciting young player in, in in the world. Like, that's an excuse for the way that Manchester United are playing this season, or the way that the way that they are sent out and look like they have no no plan against teams that do. I'm sorry, it's just it's ludicrous. So, I, I, but put all that to one side, he's not going anywhere. It's going to take a big slump for him to get the bullet. No, you're right, Gregor. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is probably going nowhere, but a boy can dream, can't he? You know, we'll see what happens at the weekend. If they get absolutely destroyed, I'm sure the headlines on Sunday will be saying uh, Pochettino should be coming uh, in the door soon. But we've seen those headlines before, haven't we? Uh, maybe it's just, it's all, maybe it's all genius from Ed Woodward. Let's, let's give him credit because let's be honest, if and when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, is sacked, it's make, just this continual drivel and rubbish performances just makes it easier for the next guy because if actually they you know they get to such a low point it pochettino must be sat there thinking go on lose another one before you ring go on look few more gone yeah get not please <laughs> another crap performance just makes it easier for the next guy so maybe it's a, it's a big master plan by edward Wood. who knows yeah and i don't think pochettino has to wish too hard for that to come true to be perfectly honest either um we're going to move on though we'll, we'll talk about events in paris next psg in istanbul basaksha here but a reminder if you enjoy the podcast you can give us a five-star rating on apple Podcasts or whichever you use make sure you're subscribed you won't miss the next episode you'll get more of our award-winning sports journalism by subscribing to the times and the sunday times today and you'll get yourself one month free as well. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details you're listening to the game podcast with Hugh Wisencroft Tom Clark Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson a couple of important stories for us still to discuss around racism and, and race in football really one of the big news stories of the week Sebastian Coltescu the fourth official in the match between Paris Saint-Germain and Istanbul Basak Shahir uh, describing Istanbul assistant Pierre Webo as the black one or in Romanian Alan Negru that incensed both Webo and Demba Bar, the former Chelsea and Newcastle forward on the bench for Istanbul on the evening the game was postponed players integral uh, in the decision to leave the pitch there was no real protocol for what happens when someone's offended by what's been said by the fourth official but the likes of Kylian Mbappe thought it was important to go off the pitch the game was postponed and replayed 24 hours later there are some though that, that feel like it, it may have been a bit of an overreaction I I, I I personally see these things as learning moments for everyone um, it's very um, unusual that in life you get sort of real life examples to deal with and learn from you know people can give you a well what if this happened but it happened here in the flesh and we saw what the reaction would be from the players um, Tom Clark, just tell me what you think about all of this, because there are people that think the players should have stayed and there are others that think it's massively important that they left. I think the most important thing is the action of the players and the walking off. That that felt to me, viewing it all, as a very powerful moment. And I think in the context of racism in football, in such a uh, such an important thing, such an important aspect of football that is still so, so wrong and in so, need of so much work, the fact that the players had the power and took that action to walk off. It almost doesn't matter. And it's a great shame that there are some people saying, oh, well, it's, you know, it's not that offensive or it doesn't really matter because it slightly detracts from the action itself. There have been so many times in the past few years where we've seen players, whole teams visibly upset, 
trying to leave the pitch, you know, walking off and coaches and officials holding them back and saying, no, no, come on, stay on. There's only half an hour left. To me, it doesn't matter. The fact that the players had the power to walk off and say, no, we're not having this. We're just not having this anymore. And the fact that they then stayed off the pitch and the fact that there was then a resolution in that, okay, we'll find a new team of officials and we can replay the match tomorrow night. We will make this happen. That gives power to the players in what is a vitally important um, area of the game that needs correcting. And that can only be a good thing, can't it? It must be. It, that, that, I, I'd, you know, I think I'd be interested in anyone's views on what they think about what was said. But the, 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 there's a, the, the fact that they had the power to walk off and that it, it's not been seen as a bad thing and it's been seen as a powerful thing, it can only be good for football going forward, can't it? Yeah, Tom was, I totally agree with Tom. I, mean, I was in Sofia last year for the England-Bulgaria game and we all knew the racism was going to come uh, in that game. It was it, The build-up, if you remember, was su- suggested it was. Uh, all, the, all the Bulgaria and FA expected it to happen. And there was the protocol that was brought in of informing the fourth official and then over the PA system, the players were and the fans were told racism would not be accepted. And it just felt like a box ticking exercise. Whereas that night, uh, the PSG Bashak Jahir game was it felt like a real iconic moment where you strip everything else away from from what happened and what was said and and whether people who view it as racist or not. strip all of that away and the fact they walked off the pitch was was the most important part of it I think when it comes to what was said that evening beside the pitch I think it's important for people to sort of grasp the context you know a lot of people are saying well what's so offensive about the black one but you're dealing with people who have been fighting to not be seen immediately as their race first and foremost. And there is a sensitivity, if that's the right word to use. And I know people would might maybe describe it as an oversensitivity at times. But there is a sensitivity around being described as your race when racism is a part of your life. You know, it's the one thing you're asking people not to see you as. For that to be the first thing that people go to, I think, is difficult for um, many minority ethnic people to take. And I think unless it's absolutely necessary, it's something that people just don't want to happen to them. And I think Denver Barr was trying to stress that. The fact that the fourth official is six feet away from the person he's talking about and could easily have walked over and pointed to him. The fact that he's a fourth official, a FIFA official in a UEFA match um, and should really understand that, that there are different ways for him to have dealt with the situation is important as well. Um, I don't think this is a major issue with officials in the game. I don't, but I do think it is an example that we can use to learn from um, because it's very rare. Like I say, that things like this come around where we can have a debate and conversation around why people are offended, why it probably isn't the best thing in the future to describe someone as the black guy or the black one. I think I heard someone on the radio today, for example, saying, why was he described as, a, as the, the one? You know, it's not just about um, necessarily the color, but, you know, he's a human being, you know, and if it, if it was someone white being described as the white one, then, then also there is an element of respect, you know, first and foremost for another fellow human being that was almost not, not in tune with the language that was used. Um And I think we had another learning moment as well when it came to Millwall at the weekend, because it's another example that, you know, these things don't really come around much in real life, that we all could have a conversation around what taking the knee meant, uh, the messaging around Black Lives Matter in football, how fans feel about it and react to it, whether they be black or white. And over the last few days, and we discussed it on the last pod, that is a conversation that we've had. There was a response this week at Millwall as well. Um to what happened at the weekend. There was a a different gesture before the match. Millwall players um, had kick it out on the front of their shirts instead of their usual sponsor. The Millwall players didn't kneel this time around, but Queen's Park Rangers, the visiting team, did kneel. Um, The players joined hands. They had a gesture where they held up a banner of equality. It was roundly strongly applauded as much as there were strong boos at the weekend. There was strong applause for what was seen uh, on Tuesday night between Millwall and Queens Park Rangers before kickoff as well. And Tom Roddy, you were there to witness that. So what, what was that like? Yeah, it was, it was the, 
there was a I got down there quite early to the den to to get a feel for it and it was interesting to speak to fans outside the ground some who one guy I spoke to a South African guy who turned up um to to speak to a, a steward who worked at the club because he'd been going for three years he said you know I'm an I'm an immigrant I come with my son and that he was at the game on Saturday and he said it just hurt him so much by hearing that and and he knew the stewards there who it would hurt as well who were immigrants and he said I I just felt so uncomfortable with it and then you had the Millwall fans I spoke to Millwall fans who booed in during that game and and they said they politicized it they said it was for political reasons against Black Lives Matter that they didn't like it and the reason they booed and which which I I I listened to I didn't quite agree with um and I think I felt a little uncomfortable with the idea of the players coming out and linking arms because it felt like a, a appeasing. It felt like they were appeasing the, the Mill fans who had booed. And I know I spoke to some who, who had booed and said they wouldn't be booing that game because of the, the attention on the club. And that was the reason that they wouldn't boo. One who even said he would turn his back on it. Um, you, you do have to give huge credit to Millwall for the effort they put in over the last uh, the, the three days before. I mean, um, Marlon Romeo, who was so understandably hurt by the reaction uh, to, to, to what happened at the Derby game. He was involved in discussions with the club. He was leading discussions with the club right up until the night before where they were trying to work out how they would go about what how they would go about dealing with it and of course kick the kick it out logo the anti-discrimination organization kick it out their logo was on the front of of the Millwall shirts instead of their usual club sponsor and it, at the end of the game he held up he held up the shirt to the fans and it felt like a that felt like a really powerful moment as well because he he didn't kneel he held his fist in the air um, at the beginning of the game where all the QPR players did. And in the build-up to it, there was constantly, I mean, I was in the, in the in my seat about an hour before kickoff and three or four times over the PA system, they were informed that QPR, the fans were informed that QPR players would be kneeling and that, that fans should be supporting this. Yeah, Malon Romo being one of uh, Millwall's black players, of course, as well, you mentioned being strongly involved. Um, uh, Gregor, this was another example, though, of the players taking control. They had some input with the club. Did you feel it was appeasement? There were some, of course, a bit like Tom alluded to that say, well, the Millwall players didn't take an E, so obviously their fans weren't going to boo. Um, there are some that said the racist has won. I'm not saying that the, there were racists booing at the weekend, but that's the view that some people have held as well. I think without being kind of a fly in the wall in the discussions and knowing whether the players really were kind of told to do so something they didn't really want to, you know, I think, you know, it's hard to know whether, whether Millwall players would really have still wanted to take the knee. But I have to say deep down, I did feel a little bit disappointed. Yeah, a little bit, I felt a little bit like it was an appeasement, but then there you, ha you have to balance that with to see like what what would have been gained if we'd seen the same scenes again. And is it you know are we good to have had this discussion is 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 uh, you know on the agenda again? But we don't want to see that. We don't want to see that on a kind of continual basis, and we just don't want to see it again. So it's it's very sensitive, and it just you know we're dealing with kind of footballs entwined and become entwined and kind of culture war stuff here. This is very sensitive issues and there's people who will be saying that the fourth official uh, in Paris you know you can't say anything nowadays you know what's wrong with that with with him if I'm identifying him as the, as the black guy or whatever um, would, in my opinion like very likely be the same people who are or who are saying who are booing or would have be of that same opinion who are booing that and, and trying to suggest that the Black Lives Matter movement is been entwined with Marxism and left and left wingers and stuff. I just think they've seen the world changing and the attitudes towards race changing at a pretty at quite a quick fast pace now, and particularly in the last in this year and what's happened in the last year. And 
we're dealing with this is a this is going to be a major issue and for for years to come, I think. And you know, so I think that for Millwall and that game, and it, it, it passed off quite smoothly. And you know, we didn't see any more any more scenes that were upsetting. And um, you know, we can kind of move on from it. But I, I think I think that really we're dealing with something that's a lot bigger than than football here. I do think from from really both events in many ways. I think one of the things that we have to understand is when when young kids watch football and it's in the spotlight for a lot of young people, they copy everything. I mean, from the celebrations to diving, uh, I've heard mothers be very unhappy about the spitting that suddenly happens when their children start watching Premier League football. You know, they do everything. You know, they have a go at the ref even. We've spoken about that so many times. You know, they will copy everything that they see. And I think the important thing about the players leaving in PSG Istanbul Bistakshir here is that it, it drew a line. And I think there are a lot of kids who will experience, and, and not just at a very young age, but of course in your teenage years and as you get into football as a man, you know, I think it has been seen for forever as that you should almost accept racist abuse when you play football. Um doesn't really matter what level, you know, get on with it, play the game, show them what's what, we'll win. That's the way to show them. And um, I think for the, for young people, if they do feel in the future, particularly insulted by racist abuse that happened, you know, we've had it from parents on the sideline in the past, um, that coaches as well will say like, let's draw a line. Let's draw a line now. Let's just walk off. We'll deal with it later. You know, the context of whether we need to win a match is gone. You know, the context of whether... Um, we just take the black players on the pitch. They won't have to put up with it anymore. We'll make some subs. That's gone. You know, those things that used to happen can hopefully be gone out of the game because people are now learning that there is a line and the line is is in a totally different position than it than we thought it was, certainly than it used to be. Um, and I think that that's important. I think it was important for a positive sign at Millwall as well because like I say, when we talk about what really is achieved, I think one of the things is the eyes of the footballing world, certainly in England, were on Millwall for that moment. And there would have been young kids who would have said, is is this going to continue? Is this how everyone's going to feel about taking a knee in the future? And for there to be, even if it was on the surface only, the round of applause, the show of respect, I think that was important for people to just see, you know, and, and hopefully learn from. So I think it was an important day for English football and, um, I think the focus will certainly change after those two things this week when it comes to race in football. So um, a tick from me, but like I say, lots of discussion for us to have going forward. We'll pause to reflect on the life of Paolo Rossi, the former Italian World Cup winner who has sadly passed away at the age of 64. It's reported in the Italian media he suffered with a long illness. But people will remember him from a fantastic World Cup in 1982. He was the Golden Boot winner, helping Italy, an unfancied Italy, to a World Cup title. Many remember him for his infamous hat-trick against Brazil in the second round, the much-fancied Brazil as well. Many say that that helped bring Italy together at a time of political disharmony. He also went on to win a European Cup with Juventus in 1985. But it is that moment at the World Cup, I think, that will emblazon him in football history forever. To help me discuss his life in football, the chief football writer from The Times, Matt Dickinson. It's a sad moment, uh, Matt, for people that remember that tournament. It, it is, yeah. And I was um, in the car when I heard it. And, I, you know, in a flash, I was um, a teenager uh, in 1982, remembering exactly my emotions, watching him um, slay that uh, Brazil team. And, and I think... You know, to un- to understand the, the the emotion of it, you you have to sort of realise that for for many of us, you know, teenage years, football nutters, this Brazil team had become a team we loved almost as much, if not more, than the England team of the time. You know, they, they, they we didn't get so much TV on the t- TV. Obviously, World Cups were sort of extra special then, and this Brazil team was suddenly being beamed into our living rooms, and they were glorious. In every, yeah, they looked fantastic. This golden kit, Zico, Edair, Socrates, even even the names were fantastic. The skills were beyond anything we'd seen before. They were scoring goals with abandon. I think it was 15 in, in, in five games. Uh, they were defensively 
you know, sort of taking chances, but that that added to, to the the glory of it. And we were just watching them spellbound, thinking we are watching the greatest team of our dreams, and they're going to win the World Cup. And then suddenly Rossi came along and shattered those dreams. So, you know, he's he's got a special place um, as a sort of dream killer, which is not to downplay, you know, him or or, or his his talents, but that that was the impact. I mean, I was as upset by that defeat as I was by anything I'd seen on a, on a sporting stage. It's a fascinating story with Paolo Rossi as well. He was implicated in a match fixing scandal, always maintained his innocence and he was given a three year ban from football. And that was reduced on appeal to just two years. And it meant he was just able to get to that world cup in 1982 in Spain. And he, he called the tournament personal redemption for him. He scored a hat-trick as Italy beat Brazil in the second uh, group stage. 3-2, they reached the semi-finals. He then scored both the goals against Poland to set up a meeting with West Germany in the final as well. Um, do you, how, what are your memories of that final against West Germany? Because Italy were not fancied to, to go and win this World Cup at all, really. No, um, but I've been mean, obviously once they've got that momentum of, of beating Brazil, I mean, my main memory is it's Tardelli's um, running sort of waving his arms in the air there's a sort of epic shot of him sort of screaming face just sort of almost bursting with the uh the ecstasy um of, of that moment and uh, yeah so that's that's my memory and it was yeah it was this sort of conflict of because as you say Rossi had come in and that yeah the match fixing sort of scandal had, had, had hung over him I mean obviously he then you know did go on with to, to have great success with with Juventus thereafter um winning titles you know european cup and so on um but I, yeah i think i think you know that 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 1982 game I, yeah i i i can honestly say it was you know it's sort of remember it almost like you know the scale of a you know rumble in the jungle or a, you know it was it was up there i mean it's arguably just for thrills and for skills and for just for what you know, I'm I'm going to go back and see if I can find on YouTube the whole game because I would sit down and, and watch it all again and, and be transported back. It fe- it felt like you know potentially one of the great World Cup you know international football matches that we've ever seen. And in many ways, the World Cup taking that centre stage. I know you mentioned seeing Brazil in their glorious shirts and and the way that that it was beamed into everyone's households as well, but. Not just Paolo Rossi's death, I think uh, Papa Bouba Diop and the way that we saw people in Senegal look at him and and the way that he scored against France and just the, the, the height that the World Cup can take a player to in everyone's heart. Paolo Rossi is one of those figures that the World Cup made him a household name across the world and left him, you know, in the legacy of football forever. Totally. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, my kids now I mean obviously you know you got the chance to watch you know 30 foot live football matches a week you're you're on FIFA they you know knowing everything about you know Celta Vigo's left back um these days you know at the time it, it was very different there was something mysterious and exotic about these players suddenly being beamed in and whether they were you know the heroes or villains were you know there there was there was something particularly captivating um, about trying to, you know, get to, to to see different styles and and say different characters, and absolutely the World Cup could transform, you know, a player in the space of you know three or four weeks from someone you had sort of pretty much never heard of, to you know one of the sort of great sporting figures of your of your of your life, and that certainly was the case with with Paolo Rossi. Our thanks to Matt Dickinson there sharing his memories of Paolo Rossi, a name that does transcend in football. And so, because we never really saw Paolo Rossi play, we couldn't really share our reflections on his career. We did decide, as he is one of the great World Cup Golden Boot winners, to discuss our favourite Golden Boot winners from the World Cup um, and pick our own and, and describe to you why they were important to us as well. I don't know who wants to start. Tom, Tom Clark, you seem like you're on, on tenterhooks. I'm always on tenterhooks, Hugh. It's all the coffee <laughs> I drink. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm more than happy to go first because that helps me claim Davos Suko from the 1998 World Cup. Uh, in France that was obviously remembered for lots of great moments for particularly from people of our generation and I think Croatia's performance at that tournament gets a little bit forgotten behind that great France team Michael Owen's goal David Beckham's red card that Croatia team was so exciting they grabbed my attention at Euro 96 two years before 
Sukor, of course, with fantastic chip over Peter Schmeichel uh, at that tournament. And in 98, they were fantastic again. They they very nearly beat France uh, in the semi-finals, of course. And Sukor was just this fantastic striker. He very much ticked the box that we hear about now of having everything in my book. He first touch skills. Uh, and strangely, I also have a special place in my heart because Davos Sukor, I won a competition to go to Euro 2008 and I was part of, I won a Carlsberg competition. So I was part of the fan VIP. Early drinker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, fresh <laughs> fresh out of my first year at university, wide-eyed off to Austria. Um, I also bumped into Steve McLaren in a car park at that tournament, but that's a story for another day. Um, and I, Davos Sukor walk, walked in in a suit shiny shoes and was tasked with glad handing some people and someone threw a football at him chested it down knee and then did about 20 kick-ups before tapping it back to the guy who just launched this football at him and I just thought that was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen Uh, and it was also the first time I'd ever been in a corporate hospitality and also the last I should just say before anyone starts suggesting that we know you're a prawn sandwich brigade come on don't lie to us no definitely not one of the great things about that as well Davos Suka and Croatia at that World Cup was the political you know a country that's been formed in 1991 being you know in the last stages of the World Cup seven years or so later um, you know a lot of people were like that was the arrival of Croatia on the world stage in terms of people seeing you know what they could do sport always plays that sort of part as well doesn't it in, in nationalism and people being proud of their country as well of course um tom roddy who have you gone for well i've i've, I've never won a carlsberg competition um <laughs> at all but um uh, i'm gonna have to i'm gonna actually go for james rodriguez at the 2014 world cup which is one which is still quite fresh in our minds um i think partly because of partly because of that goal against um, Uruguay, but also because of kind of what the the World Cup is all about, where you see these players that you didn't know a hell of a lot about and they just, they they become superstars in one moment and and just learning so much about him and that that tournament and that goal um, was was so special. and, and we're seeing it again now at Everton. Yeah, a little spark from Hamas Rodriguez and one goal of the tournament as well to boot. Um, Gregor, who have you gone for? I've gone for uh, Scalacci in Italia 90. Although I would have only been six. And, if you know, some people might be a bit disbelieving of the fact that I remember Italia 90 very well, but I do, definitely. I wrote about this in the piece about Scotland finally qualifying for a, a tournament oh, recently. he's managed to get it in. He's managed have, to get yeah, it in. Yeah, right. yeah, I have, yeah. There'll be plenty more of that, don't worry. Um, <laughs> yeah, just I remember, absolutely remember that tournament. We went out against Brazil and, you know, Pavarotti and Essendorma, all that. Um, but also, Scalacci was so different. I'd, you know, I was a Celtic fan and at that time, Celtic had people like Andy Walker and Blumen Tommy Coyne and Jerry Craney up front, like chubby... <laughs> kind of little <laughs> little workers up front, and then you see this this little Italian poacher with a kind of five o'clock stubble, and very different. You're watching, you know, that European world football for the for the first time, really. And it's always a really fascinating little side issue about who's going to end up a top scorer and Scalacci, Italy on home soil as well, and we're reminded of that when with uh, Maradona's recent passing, obviously with the. The, they went out against Argentina in the semi-finals, but Scalacci and his wild celebrations that was seared into my into my memory. So he was uh, he was one of my favourites, definitely. I've had to go for Ronaldo in 2002 in South Korea and Japan. Brazilian Ronaldo, of course, eight goals. Um, what the second team to ever win uh, a World Cup without going to extra time won every single match as well and I think only Brazil in 1970 I think were the only other team to have done that as well so it was in terms of modern football an, an amazing achievement but it was after 98 and the way that he came back from I mean at that point in 98 I just couldn't I, I've never been more devastated about a World Cup final I remember like not leaving the room and peering into the living room and seeing Emmanuel Petit score and just being in tears because I'd just fallen in love with Ronaldo in 98. So to see him come back and, you know, it was all the stuff about poisoning and what had happened. Did he have a fit or something? I don't know. And um, there was all that sort of confusion about him being on the team sheet and then not on the team sheet. I think 2002 was just like his moment. It was the time that he got to really 
you know, it was what he deserved um, because he'd been so absolutely brilliant. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I, for me, it meant a lot as, you know, as a fan of his, him as an individual. This might be slightly biased because I'm speaking as a man who hasn't cut his hair since the pandemic took hold. But <laughs> Ronaldo, Ronaldo in 2002 surely also deserves praise for scoring those goals with that haircut as well. That triangle cut at the front of his mm. head has got to be one of the most outrageous, you know, fashion statements on a sporting stage ever but maybe that's a different debate for a different day I just wonder <laughs> if it's one of those that you look back on you know you've got all the pictures in your house of you winning the world cup <laughs> and everyone and everyone's first question is going to be why did you cut your hair like that you know you think maybe I should have just shaved it off for the final so all these pictures of me with a trophy in hand didn't look like I just had this tuft of hair on the front of my head but it's iconic. And let's not pretend there weren't kids on the playground with a little triangle at the front of their hair as well, because there were, like I said, <laughs> kids copy absolutely everything. Uh, thank you for your contributions. Some legendary players there as well. I will be back with more legendary comments on Monday. We'll be reflecting on the Manchester Derby, all the action in the Premier League as well. And who knows, more big stories to come to on the game podcast. My thanks to Tom Roddy, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson. And remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of the latest news and great stories uh, from the times as well just go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game and at the moment you'll get yourself one month free we'll see you on monday as you're listening to me Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 